With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, you've landed at the VUC, IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com for their support. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSIP.com, and you can go to GetOnSIP.com for a URL people can click to call you. We've been privileged over the last five years to be using the best conference bridge on the planet. Yes, I'm talking about ZipDX.com, full-color, full-featured, full-HD conference bridge. Our website, VUC.me on the web, is hosted by Bluehost.com. And our worldwide local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. And thank you, Michael, for the pre-roll and the design of all these great graphics that I would never be able to do. This is, as the man said, 565. We have a great crowd, as always. We've got Andy Smith, James Bodie, Michael Graves, Tim Panton, and, of course, our guest, who is Ben Ward. I'm going to show Ben welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. Thanks for inviting me. We're glad to have you. Ben, I warned you about this. Uh, we have a tradition here, which is to ask people how they even got into technology in the first place, and then lead us up to Flood Network, and that way we'll be able to talk about Flood Network. Wow, okay. Uh, I have to cast my mind back a bit. Um, that makes me feel old as well. I thought I was one of the younger ones, but it's funny how it creeps up on you. Um, I think I got into technology through the ZX81, or the, no, the Sinclair Spectrum. My uncle had one. I thought it was the coolest thing since sliced bread. I had to get involved in it. And then when I went through school looking at um, vintage computer graphics, so when Pixar was really just starting, um, things like um, uh, rendering uh, digital elevation maps into um, into a flyby of, of Los Angeles for NASA. Um, I actually went and found that video recently, and uh, it's I could recreate it in Google Earth uh, live, which pretty much that, that was pretty shocking for me that something that would take three weeks to render was now um, something Ooh. I could do live on my computer. Um, in '93, uh, I discovered the internet, and I said, "This, this, this is what I want to do," uh, and well. I uh, became telecoms somehow. I don't know. I thought I hated those guys. I, I thought I was cool on the internet. So, uh, yeah, here I am. All right. So, Flood Network. Uh, by the way, Tim, thank you, Tim, for uh, suggesting Ben as a guest. Flood Network Oxford is an example of that's an iteration of the Flood Network technology, right? Uh, yeah, Oxford Flood Network is um, has now become a sub-project of Flood Network. So we actually launched a startup this year. Um, we've got uh, some seed funding from Bethnal Green Ventures uh, to social tech seed funds and also um, uh, Ordnance Survey, which is the UK's mapping agency. Um, so we're, we're developing the technology uh, from uh, a community sensor network into something that could potentially disrupt uh, the way that flooding is monitored. So, um, so yeah, if, I, I can do a little bit of introduction to it. Uh, okay, before we start, we, I should also say that there is uh, a URL people can go to while you're speaking, which is oxfloodnet.co, sorry, half French, co.uk. Um, go ahead, Ben, and explain to us what exactly the Flood Network is doing and how it works. Alternatively, you can send them to flood.network. Flood.network. Uh, oh, flood.network okay. will get Easy. you there quicker. Unless you're using a, um, an old uh, DNS lookup, and then some of the email doesn't always arrive because people don't keep up with new top-level domains, it seems. So um, let me just show you a couple of things from... Uh, let me just put a couple of slides on, and then I can tell you about what, what we do. 
So I'll share that. So um, this is Oxford. Uh, this is what happens uh, when when some of the rivers flood. This one's actually not even the main river. So the Thames runs through Oxford. Uh, this is a couple of miles from the Thames and things like this can happen all the time. Um, it can, this was actually in the summer. So this isn't even a winter flood. Um, because that's, that information is quite um, difficult to get hold of, uh, the, the Environment Agency only provide a few uh, places where it can be monitored. These kind of things really catch out the uh, authorities. So this here is actually a map of the existing monitoring network. That's the, uh, the Environment Agency is a government funded organization that uh, monitors water levels, uh, flows, and uh, many other things to do with water quality and, um, uh, but also the natural environment. So uh, they do a lot of things. Uh, this is their monitoring network. I think there's 5,000 stations around the country. Uh, but if you zoom in, what you find is that it's actually fairly sparsely covered. So uh, those, those are the monitoring stations in Oxford uh, that already existed before we started. Uh, and the road that you, that picture was of isn't even covered by those. It, the, there is nothing there that would help you know that there was a flood there. Now, I live in Oxford. Um, I stupidly bought a house in a floodplain and uh, I decided, well, you know, I'm doing Internet of Things conferences every week here. They keep saying the Internet of Things will change everything. This will be incredible. There'll be 50 billion devices on the Internet by 2020. Um, but no one was making anything. So I just thought, well, why don't we make something? So there's a flood risk area. I'm pretty much where that green dot is in the middle. That's where I live. So I thought I could probably do something to uh, to apply Internet of Things technology to this. Now, this is the existing equipment. You can see they've dug up the side of a river. There's a river bank there, there's some sandbags. Um, there's a stilling well. There's a big telemetry box. Uh, they love their big green boxes. Um, and inside there, there's probably a, a GSM system, some GPRS modem. Uh, that's our sensor. Um, that's somewhat smaller and easier to install. So uh, we, we, we don't know for certain. We think it's around an order of magnitude cheaper to install and buy and run. And these devices use ultrasonic uh, sensors to, to detect the surface of the water and measure the distance to the surface of the water. If you subtract that from the distance to the riverbed, you get the height of the water. It's fairly simple technology. Um, there's a, an antenna on there which transmits back the readings to uh, somebody's broadband nearby. So it becomes a community uh, effort because it needs to collect data over a short range. Uh, we're working on a medium to long range one, which will be using LoRa, LoRaWAN technology. Um, and we have a commercial one which uses uh, GSM, GPRS, but it's definitely not the size of this thing. It's uh, more the size of a, uh, a slightly smaller thing, slightly bigger than this, somewhere in between, let's say. Um, this is our first sensor that we installed. As you can see, you can't see it, and that's the whole point. So it was actually what we coined a gorilla sensor network in that if nobody knew it was there and nobody knew you were doing it, could you get away with it? And if no one knew you were monitoring things, actually, what could you do? You know, could you monitor air quality? Could you gather evidence about speeding or pollution or noise um, or, or flooding and use it as evidence for your your own agenda? So it's interesting for community groups. Now, community groups aren't known for the, having a lot of money. Um, so, and I had to do a, you know, had to find a business model for this. So we, we moved towards um, local authorities using the data to actually understand the situation on the ground, to put out flood barriers, to put out uh, sandbags and, uh, you know, close roads, uh, because that kind of observation information just isn't available to them at the moment through the national agency and they can't really afford to put in lots of expensive sensors themselves. That's the location of our second one. That one hasn't been installed yet uh, in this picture. Um, now, this is the 
this is the way to look at it if you're if you're looking at where the data comes from, whether you trust it. So the environment agency is the lowest resolution data. So it's very sparse sensors. It's it's spatially quite um, low res. Uh, the crowdsourced data, which is the stuff that we use people's broadbands for, um, that's much higher resolution. You, you can put them in ditches, you can put them under floorboards, at the end of people's gardens, in, in ditches which are normally dry. You can actually see where the water's coming from. Um, unfortunately, it's not very trustworthy because can you trust the data coming from people's back gardens? Are they Have they looked after it properly? Has a spider moved into it? Um, is there a duck floating by underneath it? Uh, we actually have duck removal algorithms, so don't worry about that. Um, but the the trust levels are put them in ditches much higher in the environment agency's data and lower on the crowdsource data, but inversely the resolution is lower. So I think there's a there's a good way to overlap those and actually combine them as long as you can show the origin of that data, and then use the crowdsource data to actually add to the bigger picture. So an example of how this might work. This is uh, the Met Office, this is our national weather agency. This is a, a system called WOW, a weather observations website, and it's uh, essentially crowdsourced from people's weather stations. You can see the temperature there is all fairly standard, six degrees, five degrees, four degrees. You know, it's fairly easy to spot. There's one that's uh, slightly cooler down there. Uh, it's 3.2 degrees, but you know, they all look like they roughly follow what they're doing. This is rainfall. Now, in, down in West Wittering, near Portsmouth there, um, either there's a very, very localised torrential rainpour or someone's sensor's gone wrong. So you can see it's actually fairly easy to spot if something has gone awry in the hardware or the uh, in the monitoring. So it's not as daft as it might sound putting in uh, third-party crowdsourced data uh, into actual observations, as long as you know where it all came from and you can remove it if you have any doubt. So the more readings you get, the less impact a single mistake can make. Now, the other thing that happens with crowdsourced sensors is theft. Um, that's me demonstrating theft. Uh, obviously, I've got some... Uh, uh, some of these are actually screwed down. Some of them have been stuck. Some of them we used to use magnets, um, but I think that interfered with the radio. Um, there's some interesting things to do with permissions and whether you should be doing it. Uh, our first sensor, um, there it is. First sensor there looks like a bomb. Um, it's not a good thing to be sticking under a bridge. It's something that looks a lot like a bomb. Uh, so we we developed the hardware after that. Um, part of the inspiration actually came here uh, came from the Safecast uh, radiation monitoring network in uh, Fukushima in Japan. So the government weren't giving enough information about uh, the radiation levels in the evacuated areas uh, in the exclusion zone, and so people just went out and installed uh, Geiger counters attached to the internet and then crowdsourced the data and produce this, which is the heat map of radiation. Now, that was pretty inspiring for me. Um, we don't have nearly as much problem, you know, it's just flooding. Um, uh, it, it has its own problems, you know, uh, being flooded I wouldn't I wouldn't take lightly, but uh, it's certainly not like radiation. So yeah, we, that's that's how we've done it. Um, we've, we've had some help along the way from uh, Nominets, who uh, traditionally you'd expect to be doing, uh, running the UK's domain name system. Um, but their innovation team look at things uh, from future internet. Um, Thing Innovations is a colleague of mine called Andrew, and he, he's made the hardware. And Warwick University are involved in, um, uh, they have a PhD program that's, in, that's studying the data from it. Uh, and that's the end result. What you get is a flood map. So uh, down the left-hand side, you can see the graphs, uh, the hydrographs, and they tell you what the water levels are. Uh, this is January uh, 18th this year, so it's not January 2018, don't worry, it's not predicting the future. Um, and you can see the, the the segments of river that are affected by the particular um, sensors. Um, I could even show you in a minute an actual live map. 
but this is the kind of level of detail that you can get down to, just a little stream that uh, branches off in the middle of the city. Uh, that's that location I showed you earlier, and that, that, that shows you how to how much detail you can get. This is the exciting bit for everyone, this is the technology bit. Um, I've, I've got down there the, the progression of the, uh, the prototype from the bomb-like one at the left, uh, IP55 case with Suguru attached. I don't know who's used Suguru. Hands up, anyone, if they've used Suguru. It's I'm an investor. Uh, you're an investor. Brilliant. Okay. So it's, it's useful stuff. Uh, just to bodge something together and make it work. The next one is mechanically fixed to the box, um, but they're all still IP55 up to this point, so they let water in. And what's the one thing you don't want to do during floods is let water in. So we went IP67. We designed the board for the case. Uh, we tried to figure out how to mount uh, something externally while still attaching to the board and having a screw mechanism. It's it's a nightmare. Don't make hardware if you don't have to. Buy someone else's hardware or get them to compete with you and then they'll make it cheaper and then you can buy it. Uh, just don't waste your time making hardware. It's really difficult and time consuming. And when you've made 10 of them, you put 10 of them out and you find a problem with them, you've got 10 things with a problem out there that you can't fix or you've got to go out in the cold and wet to fix. Um, Slightly tangentially, but a key part of the project is the picture on the right is a TV white space radio. Um, so that's uh, a piece of hardware made by a company called Adaptrum from California. Um, this is using uh, the television UHF spectrum. Uh, it's dynamic spectrum access, which is a new way of accessing or allowing people to use spectrum. So instead of sending a well, you probably don't send faxes these days, but, you know, Ofcom and FCC, I'm fairly sure, do have a fax machine. You arrange some meetings. You go down to uh, Southwark Bridge. You're going to sit in a, uh, a hot room and listen to people talk about coexistence and things like that. Uh, and eventually, after an auction and spending all of your cash that you don't have, you get some spectrum. Or with dynamic spectrum access, you use an API. You make a request and you get some spectrum. Um, I don't think you could get many orders of magnitude quicker uh, than, than the other method. And I think being able to request a slice of spectrum from a database is absolutely game-changing. Uh, I can't say it will change the game because I know uh, mobile operators exist, so uh, they will pr probably try and stop this. Uh, they'll find a reason why not to. Um, we had... We've spent the last couple of years talking to Ofcom uh, in the old style, um, and January 2016 looks like when it's going to be made available in the UK outside of a trial license. Uh, it's, it's usable in the US and Canada, Singapore, Philippines, and there are trials in sub-Saharan Africa and Brazil and quite a few other countries that I can't name right now, but uh, yeah, it's it's picking up, but I don't think it's picked up quick enough to be immediately useful. So we've used it for backhaul. As you can see, the boxes are fairly big there. So uh, there's no ASICs for this yet. There is a company in India that is working on an ASIC for 802.22, which is uh, the long-range version. Um, hey, Ben, if you... Oh, I was, gonna, oh, I was just going to ask you to share, show yourself, but you have more slides. Yeah, sure. Sure. So... Um, there's, there's some contact details if you need them. This is what I should have underneath my face, if you uh, see. But I, I used Chrome like a fool, uh, so I can't get the uh, banner underneath my, underneath my face. That is unfortunate. And I know Mr. Mr. Bodie has a question, so I'm going to call on him as soon as he's unmuted. James. Yeah, there we are, unmuted. Hi, Ben. Um, what sort of um, volume of data are you moving um, between your sensor sensors and your central um, point? Um, every 15 minutes, we send, uh, I think it's four 12-byte messages. So tiny so, amounts? Tiny amounts of data. Um, they're they're travelling over the ISM bands. They've got to fight their way through that. Um, 
and they're using radios which are essentially used for heart monitors. So it has to be very simple, very quick. Uh, and so these are a Laura, Laura, Laura Wan. Um, we'd, love, we'd love to have Laura Wan. We have, we don't have Laura Wan yet. We have um, uh, Sissico, uh, the best on, I think, Dallas or uh, Texas Instruments uh, radio. Right. Okay. So did, the did, uh, did you mention how many sensors there are? If if you did, I missed it. Uh, no, I didn't. There's there uh, there's 15 in varying states of decay uh, because weather and uh, let's see and and theft and other things. So um, around the city at the moment, uh, you can see there's there's quite a few there. Um, there appears to be a flood because the environment agency may have changed their baseline, which means that our offset is now wrong. Um, and this one is is uh, aforementioned hardware problem. Um, we we have we have the code in uh, development to actually remove these spikes, uh, which which are known bad readings. Uh, but that, that's something that we can we can easily remove. Um, it's it's a lot harder to actually fix the hardware first. So fix it in software, then go and replace the hardware. Did you mention what you do for power? So the power, no, I didn't. They're battery powers. So if I stop sharing my screen again, and I'll show you, there's a device. Um, Which looks a bit like a, a satellite rocket motor, actually. Yes, it does look like, a lot like a retro rockets and thrusters. And we use one uh, AA battery. It's actually a specialist one that's uh, 3.6 volts. And that lasts about a year. That's pretty good. Yeah, I think we could do better. Um, and if we had solar, um, we could last indefinitely. Although there's a lot of trees near rivers. Uh, lots of wet trees near rivers. That's also bad for radio. Um, there's a lot of challenges with it, definitely. So what do you do when the water level uh, rises? Do you put your wellies on? Uh, me, personally, I do, <laughs> to go and look at the sensors. But the, when the water level rises, you, what you can do is you can infer from previous experience where there were problems when the water reached that level. So uh, you could don't be at the end of the road, you'd know that that path is submerged, you know that, that is, that's fine for you, you've probably got um, another uh, 20 centimetres to go before you have to worry, for example. It's not as if you can do things like opening lock gates and move the, the, the problem downstream or something um, like that. Yeah, you could definitely put actuators into the equation. Um, that's managed by the environment agency, uh, and they they actually do um, manually do that. So they manually manage the river flow. Uh, so further downstream, Abingdon gets the results of whatever they do. So they have to be wary of Abingdon and upsetting them too. Well, I suppose you can, you can always warn them. Abingdon, there's uh, 10 million gallons of water, 10 million tons of water on the, on its way downstream to you now. Yes, and then evacuate. <laughs> A lot of it is to do with um, keeping the water safely stored somewhere without flooding anyone, um, rather than dredging everything and trying to shoot it through as quick as possible because that's what's got us into this state in the first place. Upstream in the catchments, you've actually got uh, very limited woodland, which means the water actually runs off the fields and into the rivers straight away when it rains. The, um, uh, I was actually out in a field doing a test the other day. I felt like back at school doing geography. Wonderful. So what are you going to go do get moving forwards in, in terms of radio technology? Because I have to admit that's... The bit that really gets me excited. I can't get too excited about water, even though I I, I was flooded twice. Yeah. Um, and then I moved, so I live on a hill now, so it's much better. Yeah, I thought that is. The, Means I don't have to worry about river levels anymore. You, you do have to worry about runoff and urbanisation. So uh, there's still there's still a place for this. Um, but the yeah the radio hardware. Um, we, we've kind of outgrown, I think. Um, it's the packet length wasn't big enough to take the 
device identifier. So we had to make our own device identifiers that were short versions, and then they you have to manage them. You have to keep a spreadsheet of numbers that map to device names, and you know, that whole thing becomes quite a mess. So what we did, we took the, the identifier off one of the pieces of the hardware and used that, and that blew out of the payload size of the packet. We start transmitting two packets, one of them gets lost, then we have to add some kind of correction so that we know it's got lost. Um, get more than one device transmitting, they, they collide, there's no real collision detection because we're not working at that level. Uh, and it just, you end up reinventing the wheel, you think there must be something better than this. Uh, plus the range is uh, limited. Um, in fact, we've gone backwards in range since we did the latest versions. Um, so, Would you consider using a commercial service like one of the Sigfox network, Sigfox network operators? So that's a big philosophical question, actually. Do you wait for the subscription operator to arrive to provide your infrastructure, or do you build it first? And or do you do both? I think you have to do both. If you build your own infrastructure everywhere, at some point you're going to look like a fool having built your own infrastructure, unless you want to become an infrastructure provider. Um, a lot of people say, why don't you use mobile? Um, and there's lots of reasons. Yes, why don't you use mobile? It's expensive. Uh, the, as the modules are expensive, there's a subscription charge for it. The power requirements are huge. Uh, it has to be on a um, solar power supply. And the form factor, you know, just increases. Well, you know what? I would take it to task on every one of those bullets because it doesn't have to be. Um, so take picking those off one at a time. It doesn't have to be expensive. Uh, and, and you don't even need a data service. You can use something like uh, USSD as your transport. Okay. Uh, which can be extremely uh, cost effective. And on the power side, uh, you only have to power up your device when you want to send. And when so you want to leave the it, you don't leave it asleep. Uh, they're because they're uh, not going to a rapid response, mobile networks and devices. They wake up, they take a few minutes, make a coffee, have a thing. So the issue is if you want 15-minute readings, then how long do you think the maximum, what your duty cycle would be? It would be about, what, one in three 20 seconds to power up from a standing start right so, uh, so that's... and and if you're static and you're willing to cache the, the variables you, you can get that down to three to five seconds well the boot time of the, the device is going to be longer yeah than well that. you don't exactly boot it you just uh put it into a uh, into a sleeping state and then just wake it up so all the um the registration status is still there and you just wake it up once every couple of minutes or so when uh, when you need to. Hmm. I, I mean, I think think that's an, an interesting uh, interesting set of hardware challenges, which are, you know one would have to go go down. Um, and then then the trouble is that once you've done that, you're in bed with the operator who rolls over and squashes you, when you become inconvenient. Um, that's the the real. I mean, I don't know if that's Ben's philosophical problem with it, but but certainly it would be mine. Um, not all operators are evil. <laughs> Can I zoom back for a second? Uh, I'm curious about something, Ben. This is a lot of information. I assume it's being logged or so stored somewhere. Um, maybe there are other uses for it as well as the immediate. So definitely, yes. Um, one of uh, one of the products that we do is actually to alert local authorities. So it actually turns into alerts. Um, and the data that we're collecting can then be used historically to uh, calibrate the flood models. Uh, and then once you've recalibrated your flood models based on this input data, you can then run the live data through those models and actually get a better idea of what's going to flood. So it helps with calibration and accurate prediction. Um, I can show you, you know, a little glimpse of what it looks like around the back. And here's our, here's our telemetry coming in. We've got uh, a missed pole there from this one. 
this one's seven hours ago it went missing for example uh, the battery levels you can see them being red over time um, we've heard from this one uh, recently you can look at the and actually see what's going on so the raw data is there and uh, it's all being logged in a time series database the one that went missing does that mean it was stolen pardon uh, the one that went missing, was that stolen or, or is it just an equipment failure? Um, it's gone, it's actually gone missing. Um, so that, that one appears to be on a Sunday afternoon, someone on a punt, it was quite a nice day, and someone on a punt went and knocked it off from under the bridge, that's my guess. A question from IRC that uh, Fred asked, and it's a good question, is 15-minute polling enough to detect a flash flood? Uh, we we think so, yes. I think it's it's... It depends how flashy you're talking. I mean, the the catchment we're in isn't. Uh, it, it is flashy, but not to that not to that degree. Um, you can certainly change the polling cycle. Um, and one of the things we have considered, although not implemented, is to send messages. We only receive messages from the sensors, but you can tell the sensors to start uh, monitoring more rapidly uh, when you expect bad weather. And also more slowly when things are um, less risky, and you have some good meteorological data to help you make those decisions. So, on the on the geeky stand uh, standpoint, what's the um, you say that the uh, the devices under the bridges talk uh, radio, short range range radio to people's broadband, but they, what's in between? What's your what's your middle box? Do you have a middle box, presumably? Ah. The, the magic of the Raspberry Pi. Okay. So we have an equivalent radio in this device here, um, which you can see just perched on top, and that receives the uh, frames incoming from the sensors. So you can put several radios out, uh, several sensors out there, and have them collected with one device. Um, is that something you you do? Do you have like lots of sensors coming into a single device, or are they generally one per one? Well, it, it's generally one each, but then I think uh, it's because of the range of the radio that means that we don't do that. Uh, but what the, the the one that is at the end of the white space backhaul is actually uh, on a proper antenna, and that covers uh, quite an area. Then now we've got something like six sensors out there, including under the floor of the pavilion. Um, temperature sensors and uh, other things like that. Um, so yeah, we we use a Raspberry Pi in this case because we just could. We we're, we're prototyping first of all, so prototyping on Raspberry Pi is just incredibly easy. And although it's overkill, we can't actually make anything cheaper that does the same job uh, because these things are fifteen pounds. Uh, you can't really make it much cheaper and reliable than that. Uh, to put an IP stack and do a, a custom translation. So, so basically, all you're doing there is you're not doing any analysis on the Pi. It doesn't. It's just like passing the data through with a slight transform, perhaps. That's right. It, what it does, it takes it from over the air uh, proprietary radio protocol and puts it into a uh, standard, which is called MQTT, so Message Queue Telemetry Transport, and it's uh, created by IBM some years ago. Uh, and you can put anything in those payloads and set the um, the parameters of the session. So they're either fire once, deliver once and only once, uh, queue them up, or lose them forever. Um, we also have a, a secret source um, pairing system, which allows you to only receive data from expected sensors and then have them delivered automatically to the correct topics, uh, to the correct data streams, without any mucking about. The um, As soon as you define the data stream, then that sensor will pick it up. Uh, sorry, that um, gateway will pick it up from a particular sensor that's been mapped to. Another quick question. Uh, do you have any kind of encryption or means of rejecting bogus uh, update? Uh, so the encryption in various stages, we don't have any encryption on the MQTT, but we know that we, we can easily add that with SSL. Um, we've, the over-the-air encryption on the radio 
um, that we haven't bothered with because we know that it's just it's just a limited uh, experiment. We know that that is something. If you get moved to LoRaWAN, that's something we would put on straight away. So we've we've moved from uh, a kind of community experiment into something that now needs that level of protection. Um, you can spoof the readings if you want. Um, you have to be one of the associated sensors. So uh, to to do that, you would have to first listen over the air, listen for the IDs that are being used, then pretend to be one and then send your own um, and get one of these radios, of course. Uh, alternatively, you could just go up and put your hand under the sensor. So um, there are other ways of, of spoofing it. Um, yeah, so we know we know some of the weaknesses. We've certainly done done the work on the pairing and the um, keeping that bit secure. But uh, yeah, it's at the moment it would have slowed us down, and now we we know that that's the next stage that we need to do. And we, since we're changing the technology, it doesn't really seem like it's a good time to retrofit it. I want to remind so, everybody that we're watching on Twitter. Uh, that would be the tag VUC five sixty five. Of course, we're on IRC, as always, and if anybody on ZipDX has questions, you hit star six to toggle your mute state, whatever that means. So, so, so have, you, have you thought about doing some sort of local, um, I mean, you, you're doing local caching, basically, of data, so if they lose the DSL for a little while, the data will presumably turn up a bit later or whatever, but, but have you thought about doing some local analysis as well, so that, um, you know... Maybe uh, maybe even your Raspberry Pi could sound a klaxon if the local uh, local monitors are, are flooding and the DSL is out, or something. So some kind of localized uh, action as well as, as as collection. Yeah, we we did, we aren't doing anything like that. I'll be honest. We we did talk about that as a uh, as a probably more of a thought experiment. We were trying to work out how the the if you can't do a cell broadcast, um, I mean, this may not be true anymore, but cell broadcast was always touted this way of telling people in an area that something bad was going to happen to them. Um, then if, if cell broadcast isn't a thing, then you have to, uh, someone said, well, why don't we send them all a text message? Well, you have to know who they are, where they are, what their phone number is, and then whether you're allowed to send them a message. Uh, that's quite complicated. Um, that's a, that's, herding cats kind of territory, I think. Um, how would they be notified now if they don't have a mobile and, you know, the little old lady living in a house is um, fairly isolated? What, what would she expect? And she'd probably expect someone to come around and tell her whether that's a neighbour. So this is word of mouth, uh, and that, that's partly what this is about, uh, is that it's involving the community so they know. Uh, but also a, a van with a loudspeaker on it might come around. Now, if you can connect a flood warning siren, in uh, particularly in places that have very flashy floods, um, then people know what that siren represents. Um, if you have a siren, it is, it's binary. Something bad that we've told you is going to happen is just about to happen. Uh, so it doesn't, it's, it's like the lassie bark, you know, what, what is it actually telling you? It's telling you one thing. So, if you've got that as a major problem and a major issue for you, I think that's where that would fit in. Having a siren on Botley Road, I don't think would do a great deal apart from annoy people. Um, the uh, LED blimp drones, perhaps that would work. <laughs> I, I, I was actually thinking of, of, you know, something as simple as maybe fitting a, a screen on the pie with a, a little, you know, um, audio thing so that if you happen to be in the um, in the house when the when it senses you know the flood is rising then it could bleep at you and you could go and read the display and decide whether you're going to go back to bed or 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 you know get out of the house or move the furniture upstairs or whatever it is well there are a fair few systems that actually do send an sms and that's that's the equivalent kind of local detection local action and I think what we're trying to do is get away from that because the information is just one of many data points. You want right. okay. to combine them together first to understand the situation as a whole and whether it's going to get any worse. Now, if you know that the rate of increase is very high, 
then you know that you haven't got long to think of the answer. But if it's a very slow rate and you cross a threshold, you're going to be pretty annoyed that you've been working up for something that you knew was almost finished anyway. Right. A little bit more intelligence in it. If we could control them and send the messages back to the devices, then yes. Um, But I don't think having it on the gateway is the right place. I think having your internet-connected flood warning light bulb is the answer. And if all goes according to plan with the Internet of Things, that means you can buy that from your your people in the hardware shop or um, from Philips or something like that. Right, right. Okay. Now, I'm I'm just interested in in whether there's a space for... um, kind of getting away from this business about concentrating all of the data and all of the decision making centrally. I mean, you know, one of the nice things about what you're doing with a community based project is that it is a community project. And then you you start to wonder about whether if everyone's contributing the data, like maybe it would be nice if some of the actions were also community based rather than centrally decided. But I mean, that's a, you know, I'm quibbling basically. No, I think it's it's an interesting point because what is the action expected off this map? You know, if I if if I said to you, Tim, quick look at the map, what would you do now? You it depends where you live, first of all. Right. Right. Depends if you know anyone who lives in that area. Should you tell them what do you do to disseminate that information? So it's it's fine now. It's, we're not going to die. Um, but you know, we, how do you? How do you take action right now based on what what you see here? Mm. And that can feed back into a community response. Um, some we we have looked at that aspect of it, and uh, there is a danger that you use up all your time becoming the neighbourhood watch of flooding, and uh, never make any money. So we <laughs> that's one of the possible avenues to explore. It might be that the data can then be used by someone else to do that part, I think. Right. So, the, and, and yeah, no, that's another question I hadn't asked, which is what's the ownership of the data? Is it is it commercial commons or...? Um... We started with the Oxford Flood Network as open data, and no one seemed to really care. So, and then we thought, well, how are we going to make some money out of, out of the flood network technology? And... Uh, selling the data seemed like it was a possibility. Um, then we realized that we had spoken to at least five different hydrologists and none of them knew how much data was or where it came from. So it started to, that was some bad signs that maybe people don't pay for uh, level data. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think what we did next was to turn it around and say, well, okay, you will expect this service out of this. Uh, if, if we, if we, do a commercial installation for a local authority, then would they open the data that they have paid for? And I think that is a that is a possible model for this, that you actually, you pay for the installation as a local authority, then you make that data available as open data. Um, and that, that's kind of how it works at the moment. It's just that we're approaching it from trying to pull it through from the other side, trying to make open data by installing the hardware. Right, and then getting someone else to pay for it—it's quite, <laughs> quite complicated. Have you talked to farmers at all? Are they interested in this? Uh, no, there are not a lot of farmers in central Oxford. Um, although they are in the floodplain, I must admit. Um, yeah, uh, there are lots of small use cases like that with with individuals who have a particular arrangement uh, they want to monitor. Um, I'm just thinking that people who are upstream, and, and as you say, in the, you know, in in the, um, whatever the, you know, the, the the I don't know the terminology for this, but you know, wherever the water is collected, collection zone, um, you know, if they uh, would they be interested in that would give you you know a couple of hours warning rather than a few minutes because you'd be further upstream. Mm. Yeah, they, they certainly upstream in the catchment. There are things like catchment partnerships, um, and they. It, they will lobby the farmers to maybe change their methods and so it reduces runoff. They don't have to dump a load more fertilizer on that just got washed off. Uh, and I think those are ways that you can you can affect the cycle. Um, as a technology, I don't think we have a good enough 
case for them. You know, they're, they're interested in whether what they were doing before is still going to happen. Uh, will they get paid for it or can I get paid to not do it? That's the other thing. <laughs> right. Okay. With uh, the payment system. So you always got to look at the money basically. Follow yeah, uh, essentially if I want to keep doing this, I got to look at the money because the, the hardware doesn't fund itself. Um, Nominate have covered it up till now, but uh, now we're on our own with the, the hardware costs. And we, we have to find a model that supports this. Uh, I think that hybrid of, uh, commercially installed and also the community network together. Um, I think that might be it. Cool. Okay. Anybody else have any questions on ZipDX, Star 6 to unmute or on IRC or on, uh, if you address them to VoIP, at VoIP users on Twitter? Otherwise... Um, we will repeat the fact that you can go to flood.network. Is that correct? That's right. I did not even know there was a dot .network. That's excellent. It's very easy to remember. I'm sure Andy has a question, though. Well, I do, actually. But uh, mine was, uh, was slightly, slightly different. I was, I was thinking about to uh, the uh, Illinois Institute of Technology and the real-time conference there, and one of the keynote speeches, which was particularly... Uh, about uh, water levels in the in the US and how little is actually known about uh, underground water levels and I was wondering whether whether this sort of thing um, could be extended that to to do well monitoring and, and other such things so you could see how much water there were in, in various aquifers I've no idea how much uh, data is actually available for that in the UK anyway great question on spin-off technologies so I discovered I have a local hydrogeologist. Oxford's a very strange place. Um, he is responsible for all the boreholes around Oxford. And what they do at the moment is they have a data logger in it with a pressure transducer that collects the data during the floods. And when the floods have gone, they can then go and pull them out on a, on a cable, plug them in a USB port, and it takes about three days to collect all the data from them. There's definitely an interest from them in in putting boreholes uh, live uh, into the the flood model. Um, as regards wells, yeah, it's it's definitely a uh, it's definitely an idea to be able to take people's local use, which is understanding whether they get water in the well, and then combining that together to make an, a more uh, regional picture of something. So they may not care what the aquifers are like uh, regionally, but they care whether they've got any water in their well. Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to do with the flood network as well, is is what's the water level like down the end of the road? No one else cares but me, except when you combine it together with the rest. So you make a local use for it, and that justifies collection for a national use. Um, the benefit of that is you don't always have to put your own sensors in. You collect other people's stranded sensor data and put that together to make a, a value out of it. So really what you're, what you're saying is, is that uh, this data needs to be made available publicly so that people like yourself can, can make use of it. Uh, or we make agreements with the people who have that data and license that data. Okay, one way or the other. Yeah. But uh, I mean, if, if it's a, a national body, I would hope that open sourcing the, the data is a, a, a much more... Um, beneficial way to go. If they're prepared to pay for it first to be retrieved and aggregated, and then they would open it. Otherwise, without that section in the middle, they'll never get all that data, and we won't get the result of that open data. Yeah. It's all about money, really, and who owns what. It's, it's about, yeah. And when, when they say it's all about money, it's all about actually surviving into next year and still doing this, so I guess there's... Yeah. Yeah, I think what's interesting about this as an IoT project is that there there are, unless I've missed one, there are actually no privacy concerns. It's not like knowing what's in people's fridges. Well, have you ever tried to get insurance? Living ah. area? Okay. Well, so, I mean, is that is that an interesting case? Can you say, you know, here are my water levels. Um, I've reduced my like having a house alarm. You know, I get I get reduced insurance prices because I have a 
a, a burglar alarm. I actually don't, but you know, get reduced prices. But in theory, I could. In this case, you will have dug some ditches or cleared out all the gullies, and consequently, your water levels will be much lower. Therefore, you should qualify for lower insurance premium plans. Yeah, I think you could demonstrate that with that. That's why, I think this approach with the insurers, insurers, they're interested in recognizing their flood risk and improving their flood risk models. But individually, it's not like uh, accelerometers strapped to a car and the accelerometers say how fast you've traveled and what you've been doing and how you've been behaving. It's your environment and whether that environment is still within some bounds. Um, if you have enough sensors, yes, it starts to it starts to look like that previous model. Otherwise, it's it's hoping that no one spoofed the sensor readings. I suppose. <laughs> I think there's there's a lot of, you know distrust of it because it's a new technology, and there may be ways to uh, to assuage those those worries from insurers, and and you know that might actually proved to be the best way to go. All right. You've got all, Anything yeah, else? You've got, yeah, you've got all the other applications that you can use a similar technology for. So like round here, everybody runs their heating off uh, heating oil tanks, and all of the tanks have got uh, sensors in which measure the oil level. And just being able to watch levels of uh, fuel consumption during the winter could be relatively interesting. Certainly when you're uh, your oil level goes below a certain level. You probably want to automatically arrange a, a, a resupply run, subject to certain constraints. And you want to be able to, yeah, put together a community order to make it worthwhile that the bigger tanker coming out and doing, I don't know, a dozen deliveries all in a very smaller area, all the same sort of time. Perhaps. That's already been done. Um, yeah, I, I met someone who was doing that. I, I'm not sure if he he was. Taking exactly that angle, I think he had a, uh, an axe to grind on uh, uh, fuel costs or something. But essentially, it was uh, a sensor that would tell you when your fuel uh, was low, and the, the community would join together to make lower price uh, buying. Uh, one of the one of the things I was told about is that uh, some of the deliveries actually can scan the tank levels as they pass by. And if they want to drop some off on the way, they can get rid of a bit of surplus into other people's tanks and charge them as they go. Now, that is useful. Mm. And that means yeah, you don't yeah. have to go back with a full tank or half a tank. Yeah, and I would expect you probably get a, a special price for the opportunity drop. Yes, I, th I think so. And I think that's the, that is one of my, um, my favourite things to look for in Internet of Things business models is, is that supply and demand and what saving you can make. If it's an opportunity for someone else uh, based on either your misfortune or a condition that will pass. Well, yeah. In fact, on, on that strand, uh, you could also do a, a fuel tank uh, burger alarm. So if somebody comes along and suddenly starts siphoning off your, your, your fuel and the, all of a sudden the oil level drops dramatically, you can, uh, uh, you can alert PC Pete come out on his bicycle and uh, apprehend the person who's attacking your fuel tank. You can, or you could have it ignite. Well, uh, I wouldn't want to do that, really, but, uh, well, yeah, you could. Actually, James, you would, you would want to do that, but um, no, you, well, but we, there you go. Well, no, we just deploy Andy Sentrybot. <laughs> Which has suddenly become a flamethrower. <laughs> well, it could be, couldn't it? This uh, sounds like a good time to go to the mature audiences only version. So Indeed. we'll ask one more time for questions and remind people that they can uh, check out flood.network. Great URL. Wow. I, I think, think I just want to amplify that thing that sure. Ben just said, which is that, that the, there is, I think that's the most interesting business model for uh, Internet of Things is the peak shaving. The opportunity to make, to, to shave off peaks in, in demand um, by moving demand around slightly. Uh, to make it significantly cheaper to deliver, I think that is that is the biggest and most interesting op opportunity. And everything else is way, way, way down the line commercially, um, and and certainly 
uh, Bluetooth toothbrushes are way down the line as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Ben, it was great to have you. Thank you. And, of course, um, anything new you want to talk about, you ping us and come on back. You're always welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. And thanks to Tim for thinking this up, and thanks to everybody who participates. We're just in a moment. We're going to go to um, – actually, I shouldn't cut off to the mature audiences because we've got Alan. Alan Quayle is with us. Let's, uh, let's talk for a second about what's going on with uh, – with the Tad Hack and Tad Summit, because I will be at at least one of those, maybe two. Hey, I hope both, Randy. So uh, thanks so much for giving me a, a little time just to uh, give it a quick update on what's happening with uh, Tad Summit. So uh, Tad Summit uh, is on the 17th and 18th of November in Lisbon, but it's not just those two days. We've got a ton of stuff happening around it. Uh, on the 16th, well, actually, on the 15th and 16th, the Cloud Communications Alliance are uh, having a, a big meetup there. Then we've got, uh, on the 16th, the Monday, workshops from Le Bon, uh, a benchmarking workshop across telcos. We have a RESTCOM uh, workshop for newbies. And, of course, we have the Oracle workshop where James will be presenting. So we're looking forward to that. Then after TED Summit, We've got a uh, Huawei workshop, and uh, the Telestax guys have got a three-day, or potentially four-day, marathon RESTCON event. So this is whole of the telecom app development community are coming together uh, in and around Lisbon for uh, the whole week, from basically uh, the Sunday through to the Sunday. So it's going to be great fun. And just a little bit of background, TAD Summit is all about the business of telecom app development, while TAD Hack is all about developers, creativity, and doing cool stuff. And as you said, Randy, we also have uh, TADHack coming up in Paris on the uh, 12th and 13th, and we're hoping we'll be having Randy play there. Uh, it's taken way too long to get that confirmed, but hopefully <laughs> in the next couple of days we'll get that confirmed. So really looking forward to it. It's going to be a really cool, mellow hackathon with a great Parisian feel. So, and I'm uh, very difficult on the contract, though. I've, I've, uh... <laughs> oh, tell me about it. Yeah, what, what color M&Ms does he want? That's what we need to know. <laughs> yeah. No, it's yeah, more yeah. than no green light on the, on the uh, stage. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And we're going to be updating the agenda uh, later today. I mean, if you just go to tadsummit.com, Click on events. You'll see the agenda. Download it. I mean, it's jam-packed. And I think the big shift this year is we've been talking about this, the, you know, the democratization of telecoms, thanks to the internet, thanks to open source, thanks to telecoms just being programmable through all the APIs and platforms that are being made available. But we're really seeing now lots of small, medium businesses making real money. I mean, that for me, I think, and the, you know, the, the, the presentations we're going to have, the bias is definitely outside of telcos and showing just you know, businesses focused on IoT, focused on financial services, using telecom capabilities and making real money. So I think we're moving from this, you know, there's the vision. Yeah, the vision may happen sometime. So we're really starting to see big bucks being created. I, just to share with you, I was um, at the Flowroot customer event in Seattle yesterday. And again, it was just heartwarming to see some of the businesses that I one weave. They're doing amazing business in just delivering to doctors, just a, just a vertical, a integrated sort of ICT solution, embedding communications and messaging capabilities into just dentists actually uh, processes and they're taking that and they're now applying it to optometrists and they're doing amazing business so we're really starting to move from what you know is a cottage industry i think to really becoming a uh, significant uh, trend in the market it, with you know, this whole concept of democratization of telecoms so that's it just a quick update be there or be square it's going to be a couple of hundred people having lots of fun in Lisbon on the 17th and 18th of uh, November. And let me just uh, go out on this note before we go to the mature audiences only version of the VUC. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood 
Jobs.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our host at PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.